Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but is composed by people, and each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. The cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it, and Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code, because Ethereum is people all the way down, and always has been. Today on Layer Zero, we're talking to Fiskantes, or Fisky, who is an Anon crypto Twitter participant, but also uh, part of Z Prime Capital. And Fisky has been known for just very good and sensible and strong takes in the crypto Twitter sphere, as well as being somebody who is just a, a well-seasoned investor in the crypto space. And we talk about the frontier versus the center of crypto and how the frontier always expands and it attracts the individuals, the explorers. And as the individuals of the crypto frontier who are playing the frontier metagame, find something new, something cool, like NFTs. We found NFTs and all of a sudden it changed the Overton window of the meta of crypto. But then it became a little bit more institutionalized. It came a little bit more expertise. And so the frontier shifts. And so as Bitcoin has been completely subsumed by people that also trade stocks, the institutions of the world, it has become institutionalized and the frontier has been expanding beyond Bitcoin and it has been expanding beyond Bitcoin ever since. And so it got to Ethereum, but then Ethereum became institutionalized. It got to DeFi, but then DeFi is becoming institutionalized. And the frontier is always where the individuals lie because that's where the professionals aren't. That's where the institutions aren't. And so this is the way the crypto industry explores and Fisky talks about why he enjoys being on the frontier so much. We start with his background with poker and connect that to many other themes throughout the podcast. So I'm sure you're going to love this thought-provoking episode with Fiscantes on Layer Zero right after we get to some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Hey, Fisky, how's it going? Hey, fine. Yeah, just in a hotel room in Spain. Thanks for having me in this uh, weird hour of day. Oh, of course, of course. Thanks for making the time out of wherever you are making your trips for to do this. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's better to be on this podcast than uh, just partying somewhere else. So <laughs> happy to be here. Very, very true to crypto is like rather be in the crypto world when out and about. Um, I want to start this conversation with poker because you are one of those crypto people that came into crypto with a poker background. And poker seems to be one of many ways that people ultimately fall in love with crypto. People that loved poker seem to be able to translate those skills into crypto pretty well. So I'd like to start this conversation there. How have you like noticed or paid attention to just like poker skills and how it relates to crypto skills? So I would say that poker in itself is very similar, let's say, to trading more than like to, let's say, crypto investing or getting uh, deep into the tech side of things, mm -hmm. which I started to do a bit more. But still, there are many lessons that I took from poker that I couldn't or wouldn't learn elsewhere how to apply like basic statistics to make like decisions under pressure regarding to finance, right? And one other thing, I don't think I mentioned this one before, because I was talking a lot about my poker background. One important thing that I realized only recently is that during my poker career, I had to play many tables at the same time because I was playing online. Mm -hmm. And you need to basically make a lot of decisions pretty fast. Like most of these decisions are pretty trivial, but you still need to like consciously make the decision and click the button and move on to another table. And now I realize that when I'm like, let's say, researching our deal flow for Z Prime, I'm getting a lot of inbound through my DMs. I'm actually pretty fast at like spotting what kind of things are interesting and what I want to disregard. Like some of my associates, they go much deeper. They start to like research, uh, you know, see the deck. They go to the 
some other data sources and they do a deep research. But at that time, I already know if I want to fold or continue to pursue the opportunity. And I think that's something that maybe not many poker players would tell you that this is important because most of them were playing live where you only can play one table and you can focus on your one hand and one opponent. But with online poker, with multi-tabling, this was very important to be able to kind of decide very fast and intuitively. And this intuition just, I mean, of course, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. You need to see a lot of action. You need to play a lot of hands to be able to internalize like the decision-making process in a way that I don't, sometimes I can't even explain why I don't want to do some investment, but I just know I don't. And I need to spend a lot of time thinking to, you know, formulate my decision-making process because it's so intuitive at this point. I saw so many deals and it's similar to poker. I saw so many poker situations that it just comes naturally. So I would say that this is like one big advantage that's like less obvious than just saying, oh, I know what expected value means and how to play with odds, how to have a correct bankroll management, for example. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, I think to put the right image into listeners' heads, we shouldn't be like looking at Fisky sitting at one poker table playing one game in deep thought about one move, but instead like an array of poker tables going and paying attention to all of these things, all these poker tables all at once simultaneously. I have another friend that has the same background that has also done very, very well in the DeFi space. And he talked about how he had this script that would play in the background and it would just tell him the right move to make for like 99% of moves, like most of the moves, because like most of the moves, like, okay, we are obviously playing this, we are obviously calling, or we are obviously folding. And so then it would just call his attention into this one particular scenario where he would actually have to do the computation in his head. But it was like a chip in the brain, right? He was like this AI enabled thing able to master, like he said between 30 and 60 tables all at once. And he was farming this whole like online poker thing. And this script was playing to help him just like judge. But he said that at some point when it came time for like the human element, it was all about pattern recognition and like intuition and just like seeing and quickly interpreting data and being able to come to a split decision like very, very quickly. If you're telling me that these skills have translated into the DeFi space, when there's absolutely like no precedent with good products and or at least just a short precedent of good products in this space, like that pattern recognition skill, I think is must be the thing that's really coming alive here. Is all of that tracking? Yeah, it is. I mean, I haven't played so many tables. I played like mm-hmm. up to 12, maybe 14. I didn't have any particular script. So it was all like me doing the like quick math mm-hmm. or whatever, quick decisions. But it's very similar. And yeah, you are definitely correct that in crypto, the landscape moves so fast and changes so fast. It's very different than poker. Like in poker, you still have like fixed amount of cards you play with. You know, there are fixed amount of situations that can happen. They are all kind of constrained within very simple set of rules. In crypto, you have all these like, I don't want to call them games because sometimes they are like legit products building something interesting, but they are sort of gamified in a way that you need to understand, specifically in DeFi, you need to understand the rules very quickly. You need to maybe be able to review the code if it's like fork of synthetics contract or if it's something new. And then you need to decide very fast if you want to kind of farm or if you want to just do something else or if you want to accumulate a token. And yeah, so I think like, At the beginning, when the meta, so to speak, changes, you need to be more qualitative. You need to go deeper into everything. And only over time, as you start to understand how this new set of projects or products operate, then you can like switch to more like autopilot mode. But at the time, usually, you know, it already starts to vein. So you are already looking where the ball will be next, Mm. or what will be the next like interesting thing. 
And yeah, I mean, one more thing that's interesting with crypto and poker is that many of these, like even DeFi projects or even crypto games, they actually face similar issues that online poker rooms faced early on right. in the early days of online poker. They were rewarding professional poker players that played a lot of table or gave them a lot of volume, which is now the same as, let's say, DeFi project that rewards TVL, like big whales that do a lot of lending or liquidity providing. And this is something that actually was not sustainable, especially in poker, where you need to have both sides of the table. You need to have professional poker players that are inspiring and attracting all the fish at the table. They are playing a lot of volume, but then you also need these guys that come in and want to play and have fun, not just to win the money. They actually need to be happy to spend money to be losing over time and still keep playing, right? Otherwise, the poker game is dead. So in many crypto games or even some DeFi projects that are more let's say, zero-sum oriented or uh, like short-lived, this is the case. And if you want to play these types of games more actively, you need to understand this equation. That being said, I'm much more enthusiastic about things that I can just bet on long-term and and just help the founders build something really big. But yeah, I mean, I don't deny I play a lot of these short-term games as well, especially early on in DeFi summer, where I wasn't still so well off as I am now with my investments. Right. Yeah, I actually want to go into that because I think that's a great metaphor. And we love metaphors here on Bankless, of course. Can you talk about how these online poker rooms would incentivize the volume, incentivize the whales? And the gist I'm getting here is that like, you need to incentivize the whales because they're the liquidity providers of these poker tables. It makes the poker rooms full. It makes the poker website like easy to find a table. But also you can't incentivize the experts too much because then they'll just milk all of the newbies for all their money and the newbies won't come back. Can you unpack this dynamic a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of simple. The basic reward mechanism was rakeback. So when you play poker, you pay rake or fee. Let's call it a fee. And when you play a lot of tables, there were some, uh, you know, some levels you could achieve if you played a lot of tables or like turned over a lot of money where you would get, so to speak, rakeback or like rebate from the fee you paid and some poker players were actually just playing for the maximum amount of rakeback they could get and with fees they would be even losing money playing so many tables they weren't even winning anymore because they couldn't focus on the game itself but when they got their rakeback back they would actually be up quite a lot so that was so they were subsidized yes their performance was yes yes and it was like basically just let's say wash trading incentivized wash trading Mm -hmm. when i make this comparison to let's say exchanges and uh, yeah, this was, of course, detrimental because then you had all these brain dead players that would play a very boring ABC game that wasn't entertaining for players who want to have fun. They weren't able to enjoy the game so much and they were losing money against them and they weren't even getting into interesting situations because these players would just play very simple and just play the best cards, basically. So then like some of the best poker rooms figure out they need to cut this sort of reward scheme and they need to start rewarding interesting actions. So they would be rewarding all kinds of things that would help to make the game more interesting. Like the most obvious example would be win with 7-2, you know, like which is the worst card in poker. And when you win with 7-2 or if you bluff someone out from the pot and then show 7-2, then you will have some bonus points or rakeback or something like that. So this was something that majority of the best online poker rooms switched to to kind of attract more action, more interesting, fun action. And of course, like many, many professionals were disgruntled by this because their rakeback schemes were cut down. But it was, I think, net benefit for the game itself or for, for those who wanted to enjoy the game. So 
I kind of feel, I mean, of course, DeFi is not just like zero-sum game uh, right. against some like different type of players, but it's still worth to figure out what kind of actions do we really want to incentivize for longevity of the project and not just for wells to come in, suck it dry, and then jump onto the next ship. Right. Earlier, you talked about the difference between like qualitative and quantitative eras of crypto where like as the new thing happens, you have to lose your metrics and you have to leave your metrics behind and you have to go like understand something new. And then over time, as you understand it, you can turn into more quantitative understanding of whatever this new thing is. Is that when we apply this to the poker metaphor and we just like have a ton of liquidity incentives or just like participation incentives for all of these people that are just farming as many poker tables as possible. When you said that it just turns into like drabness about the liveliness of the game as in it's just like uninteresting. Is that just like we have these people that are just way too quantitative about the poker game and they're not being fun. And so like the poker uh, rooms would have to like throw in some like gold stars every now and then some like some Easter eggs just to make it more like quality of life. Is this like the right progress? Yeah, that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect is that you want to make these quantitative, very like professional and not into the game type of players win less. Mm. So the players who want to enjoy the game and who want to deposit the money into the gaming ecosystem are actually happy to do it that they are not losing as fast mm. right so that's another maybe even more important aspect to it right. but we are talking here about zero sum game which right. like a lot of crypto is but not all of it so there's a big difference between crypto and poker and other zero sum games that crypto is actually you know despite the fact that like 90 percent of it is still about speculation it's still like building something new that that can grow like multiples right and right. it can yeah it can make a meaningful impact that was one of the biggest reasons i kind of quit poker and started focusing elsewhere because I didn't feel like mm. playing cards is like, you know, it's something that you can do for life and just be satisfied with it. Right. It's extractive rather than generative. I want to apply the pendulum between quantitative and qualitative. Is that a pendulum in DeFi space? Like, you know, we created yield farming with the comp mania back in 2020 and that created DeFi summer. And that was like a new paradigm. And so people had to reestablish their fundamentals. And then NFTs came and that was a new paradigm. Is this like a pendulum between like qualitative and quantitative, would you say? Yes, I think so. And uh, like these DGENs now call it meta or changing of meta, right? right. There is like, there was Olympus fork meta. Then before that was yield farming meta or yearn fork meta and NFT meta. And for me, the qualitative is definitely much more interesting. I want to kind of predict what the new meta will be before it happens. I'm not really, and there are many people, I think the majority of people, for some reason, they are much better at the second phase where the meta already occurs and they try to chase the copycats and forks and they want to kind of systematize the game. At that point in time, I'm usually already like kind of over it and I'm trying to find what the new interesting thing will be. Of mm -hmm. course, I can be wrong. It's much more risky endeavor, but it's much more fun. But I mean, majority of people I speak to and interact with in crypto, they are much more interested in like established meta and how to like kind of systematize it quickly. Like so when Olympus was a big thing, then like everyone was jumping on Olympus forks and I was already looking elsewhere. Like, it wasn't interesting to me to just go too much into detail into various copycats. So um, yeah, it's definitely a pendulum, but I think there is like more value to focus only on one leg of the pendulum. And for me, it's the first leg. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you got to pick your side to optimize for. 
Isn't predicting the next meta, it's got to be the hardest thing to do. You're basically trying to predict the market, right? Yes, yes. And it's not a structured process. It just basically, if you have enough time, which is a luxury, of course, enough time and focus to fuck around and just do what you find enjoyable, then you can really find new meta just by accident, by just being somewhere very early and just play with it without even expecting this to be a next huge meta. Like this happened to me by accident uh, when I discovered NFTs, like in 2019. I wasn't too much into art or anything like it, but one day I stumbled on uh, Super Rare, which was like very early NFT or still is NFT art marketplace. And I was uh, scrolling through it. Like, this is actually pretty cool. I can collect art, support some digital artists. I can like buy their pieces and can maybe display them somewhere. Maybe I will have some sort of a screen at home where I can, uh, you know, display my art pieces as I would with like physical uh, paintings, for example. Maybe this is, yeah, and I have like some sort of a ownership proof, which, you know, falls back to like this tokenized blockchain sort of asset that I own with my signature. So I was like, okay, this can be interesting. I didn't really expect this to be like super huge, but I started to buy some NFTs from these artists early on. Some of them made like huge multiples. And I suddenly realized that I am early enough to be able to understand and orient in the NFT space, even though I didn't expect this to be like new, huge thing. I expect it to be some sort of a fringe thing for a couple of enthusiasts. So, and one of the reasons I was able to do that was that I'm working with a team of people. I'm not like solo lone wolf in this sense. So I had more time to just do stuff that uh, piques my interest. Um, There are people out there who are doing everything on their own and they really need to be focused on their niche and they don't have the luxury to just go forth and discover a new like weird things that are that are happening maybe under the lid somewhere. So where would you say we are now in the meta? The one thing about the NFT meta that seems interesting to me is like it's not like we rotated from the DeFi yield farming meta into the NFT meta. Well, we did do that. But then the NFT meta continually changes in of itself. So we have the changing NFT meta landscape and then the actual higher order NFT meta itself, right? Like NFTs are a new thing, but then like people rotate inside of the new NFTs. Like right now, I think we're on like anime (laughs) NFT profile pictures is like the new NFT meta. If we wanted to describe maybe both like the meta inside the NFT, but also the current meta of the entire crypto industry, like how would you describe these two metas? Mm, Okay, so like NFTs itself in general, I would say are something like layer social. I don't want to give it a number because, you know, layer one, layer two, layer X, whatever, but it's social layer for crypto. I think that since NFTs became somewhat big, like even Twitter changed very much. Like before that, you had all these debates about which blockchain is more decentralized or Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And most of these debates were very technical or there were maybe some traders who were posting charts. But I'm not sure if you like notice, but with NFTs or like NFTs becoming a thing that's popular, suddenly you saw very new, interesting class of people joining crypto Twitter, like artists, right. some people who are maybe not very technical, but they are good at branding and they are good at like social these like, let's say, NFT influencers, uh, some of them like pretty influential in the space. And these people started to have very different types of conversations than what we used to. Even girls, like there are now so many girls in crypto. And I think it's mostly thanks to NFTs. Mm -hmm. We had much less girls before. So it kind of, it created a whole new social layer 
that now changed everything, changed the discourse. Now, like, everybody is talking about Yuga Labs and, and like, cartoon monkeys on the blockchain, right? Which was, like, five years ago, it would be silly to just discuss if this thing can be huge because it doesn't even, like, do anything with decentralization or, or like, financial infrastructure of uh, unbanked or anything like this, right? So it's just very different thing, and people just jump onto it, even though, you know, maybe these people may not even realize how blockchain works anymore. Right. So right. so this is very, very new, and this is very different sort of meta that wasn't here before. And when it comes to NFTs specifically, yeah, I don't really, I'm not a, like very versed in like specific NFT projects right now. I don't really focus on that that much. Mm-hmm. I much rather invest in underlying infrastructure. But yeah, I definitely noticed multiple like, sub metas like there was like art blocks generative art which i really like i think it's very interesting now it's kind of down uh, like it's not really as popular now like all these cartoon pictures are these like pfps are still popular yes anime is definitely interesting meta but anime was always like simmering in the background of crypto culture right it just seems that right now with azuki as like first pseudo anime so to speak project all the others are trying to get traction but this is like fast fashion to me. It's something that changes so fast. Right. It's not something that you can really like focus on long term with some consistent one unchanging thesis. You either invest in infrastructure or just need to jump really quickly between modern trends. And I mean, there will be people maybe even outside of crypto who will be much better at this than crypto natives, like people who are maybe into fashion, into brands or into like online marketing like sneakerheads or whatever yes 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 so i kind of feel that this is not my turf so to speak i play with it i made a lot of money maybe more by luck than by like skill but yeah i feel that there will be a couple of things that may have some like longevity to them maybe some historically important or fully on chain for like these hardcore enthusiasts of this kind of pure on chain art pieces but i would say most of the value will keep moving very fluidly between different trends and even when you see someone like i don't know justin bieber buying board ape or something and flashing it on his twitter like next month he will have something else or best case scenario for him will be that he will create his own sort of collection and start flashing that i mean that's it's just too fast you cannot really i mean maybe there are people who are good at this but it's definitely not me and this will be the thing that will keep changing the fastest right. from all the crypto metas. Right. You talked about the NFT layer as like part of the social layer of the crypto industry. Oh, it's mainly on crypto Twitter, right? Because it's like where everyone congregates. And even like the DeFi people who are just like not really into NFTs still talk about NFTs. Like Ryan Sean Adams, for example, he is not an NFT person at all, but he still has had three NFT profile picture picks over the last like year or so like the turtle the mfr and now the moonbird and so even the DeFi people play along with this whole like nft like conversation just because like i don't know it's easy to look at jpegs especially on twitter do you think like this whole nft meta is like a permanent layer of the crypto industry or do you think it's just going to be like the shelling point for what we talk about on the social layer or do you think it's going to eventually kind of fade into separate cultures and you have the nft people elsewhere who have the NFT profile pictures and like the rest of the crypto industry? Mm, I don't know. I kind of think that there will be a couple of NFT like trends that will be more crypto native and that will be closer to the current, let's say, city crowd. Mm-hmm. But I expect NFTs to kind of branch out to capture sort of mainstream audience 
maybe they will be even more centralized or something, but they will capture mainstream audience, even though that these people may not even consider themselves like crypto users. They will be just holding some pictures somewhere. And I mean, I met a guy in Las Vegas, an Asian guy who was like, let's say, ultra rich. And his Instagram is basically full of like super expensive cars and his photos in private jets. And one of the Instagram stories he showed me was just his board ape. And I'm pretty sure this guy doesn't even know that there is some sort of ape airdrop or Discord he could join. He just somehow figured out how to buy board ape because he saw maybe Justin Bieber or someone else flashing it. And he just wanted to, you know, include it in, in between his Instagram uh, flexes about his wealth. Right. So these kind of people, I mean, they will keep coming. Some of them will be like super rich. Some of them will be just someone who wants to maybe play some NFT game or do something else with NFTs, but they won't be necessarily connected to crypto culture at all. And this is all reflexivity, right? Like monkey see, monkey do. Exactly. Like no pun intended with the actual like monkey board ape actual pictures. We're just seeing like NFTs were able to make their way into the mainstream by like being reflexive enough to like inject that energy and like, you know, launch that out of the crypto industry and into the mainstream. And now like crypto is cool enough to the point where people start like just copying what we do without even knowing it. Yeah, definitely. And I think I said it somewhere. NFTs to me are the purest form of, let's say, speculation on attention. Right. Or it's like the purest like market representation of attention you can have. Because like usually NFTs are nothing else than just these pictures that are maybe cool because someone is wearing them or someone is uh, shilling them or using them somewhere or flashing with them. And other people just pile in and then like, as you can see, sometimes this attention veins very fast and then they jump up to the next thing. I mean, of course, it happens with like fungible tokens as well, but it feels like NFTs just are more purified because in with most of them, there is no promise of building some new interesting like product, some sort of financial infra layer or anything. They just, here is the 10,000 pictures. If you own one, you are part of our community or club and you can uh, flash it as your profile picture. And, you know, maybe if you buy it now, maybe it will go up in price because a lot of other people will want to flex with it too. So yeah, it's like purest form of attention, tradable attention that I know of. And maybe like, okay, so one tangential point would be that Bitcoin itself, for me at this point, is sort of, and not like NFT, but something similar because it has very strong culture behind it. It has very strong set of values and like signals you are signaling with it but it's not accruing any other value it's it's basically a pet rock right but it has such a strong like uh, narrative around it that it's actually maybe closer to some nft collections than it is to like proper let's say financial layer although you know maybe there will be you know some other use cases to it like settlement for big financial transactions but still like many people are actually flashing with their bitcoin culture like they would with like CryptoPunk, let's say. I want to ask your opinion if you ascribed to the notion that part of like NFT culture and also what you said with Bitcoin culture is a part of just like the cultural zeitgeist of the world at large right now. Like there's something, maybe you disagree, so I want to get your opinion on this, but like there's something about the whole like Robin Hood GameStop movement that seems to be aligned with like NFTs where like there was like, we just like the stonk. I like the stonk. And it's like, oh yeah, like looks rare. Like I like the NFT, looks cute. It feels like the same kind of thing. And like, I think if I put on my Bitcoiner hat, I would say that like all this money printing and the inflation and the devaluation of the US dollar 
has created some sort of like demand to like obviously buy Bitcoin, like that's the whole point, but also like play in these NFT games where there is no real value, it's pure mimetics. But like when we have an inflating like money supply, all of a sudden like playing in these weird NFT cultural JPEG games seems a lot more like normal and permissible. And I'm wondering if you see like our NFTs, they're just like weird like niche of the crypto industry that somehow caught traction or is it like also just a part of a larger story of like the global changing world order mm, a very interesting question um so like one point that i kind of felt from what you just said is that you mentioned some sort of financial nihilism like nothing makes sense anymore so we'll just buy expensive pictures of monkeys right mm -hmm. we'll just trade them and like dump them on each other's head so that's probably a smaller part of larger trend that's already happening for a few years, even before crypto. And I think someone, I'm not sure who, but someone called it speculation is eating the world. Like mm. people want to speculate, people want to bet on things, even though they may not be like sensible, you know, undervalued investments, so to speak. People just want to speculate. It actually started with like Forex or uh, widespread uh, Forex trading or brokers that were suddenly targeting retail for Forex trading. So even before crypto, this was actually a thing with crypto, it just, you know, on steroids. And yeah, so like, let's say Bitcoin is a huge part of, or was a huge part of counterculture. And now when we see how much it correlates with stocks, it kind of feels like this counterculture movement was assimilated mm -hmm. into the mainstream. And uh, the people who own Bitcoin are also the ones that trade or own stocks, right? So it's basically now the same thing, risk on asset as technological stocks. And then like, GMT and these other meme stocks, I would say, okay, so part of the reason why this was a big thing was that, okay, people said, I just like the stock, I want to support the company. But there are also very smart people who figure out the rules of the game. The fundamentals of like GMT stock were not about the company financials anymore. They were more about how the positions of these big funds are structured, you know, that they are like shorting too much and yeah, they have unsustainable books. So I mean, there were some very smart leaders in these Reddit communities, Wall Street bets, that figured out these dynamics. And then, of course, they put leaned into this meme stock narrative and coordinated some masses to kind of jump into the bandwagon. So, I mean, there are definitely, there is this nihilism. I like the stock. I just want to buy it. You know, I like Elon Musk. I just want to buy Tesla. I don't care how many Tesla cars are being sold. But then there is also this other part to this which is like let's screw up the big hedge funds that right. are you know value extractive so yeah so there are two parts to it financial nihilism and then counterculture that is not nihilistic it actually has values and the values are kind of opposing the current world order as you said one interesting thing about nfts in this context is like as i said bitcoin is kind of being co-opted you know all the like big financial institutions are now basically on board and they are maybe trying to provide some Bitcoin services or at least, uh, I don't know, they are maybe buying them for their clients or something. But you cannot really do it this easily within like traditional finance with NFTs because they are like non-fungible, right? So it will never be, I mean, on aggregate, it will be huge probably, but any individual NFT collection will never be as big as some fungible financial instrument or financial asset like Bitcoin. But, you know, that will enable these smaller players to just play with these assets without big guys coming in and just putting the fun. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe NFTs will be this important shelling point for counterculture to kind of persist, even though it 
it's somewhat failed in larger like crypto assets. But the other point, maybe my counter argument to my own thing I just said would be that I haven't seen any NFT collections or NFT projects that would have some strong set of values behind them. Like when I buy Bitcoin or ETH, I represent some like movement. I have some set of beliefs usually, or mm. at least originally these people who were original Bitcoiners, they had some set of beliefs. And now when I buy CryptoPunk or Ape, I just want to be cool. I just want to follow Justin Bieber. There is no particular like set of values that I'm following. I'm not signaling with my board Ape that I am against banks and for decentralization or anything like that. I'm just signaling that I'm rich enough to afford an Ape. Okay, this has put a lot of thoughts. So kind of the meta question I want to ask is, does the counterculture of crypto always move towards the periphery? Right. Like if Bitcoin's at the center of this whole industry because it started this whole thing, but now Bitcoin is becoming institutionalized, it's becoming a shared portfolio asset with many tech stocks, and it's no longer the frontier, right? It's no longer the counterculture. And so people have moved on to like the new meta. The new meta is also the counterculture is a question. And so like right now, maybe it's like the 10K ENS club. That's the new frontier where people are buying like four digit ENS names, like 7462.eth. And it's not really a statement of like any values or purpose or missions. Like you just said, it's just like, no, I just want a four digit number because I think it's cool. Like, and so when you tell me like the frontier, the counterculture is moving away from like the mission driven stuff. I kind of feel like the image of those like goth punk kids in high school who like, it's cool to not care about anything. So like, you know, I'll just F it. I'll just buy like a anime PFP or I'll buy like 7482.eth as my ENS name. And so like, you know, the frontier is always going on and that's where the meta is changing. And it's also where the counterculture is. Are all of these things tracking in your brain? Yeah, it's something I strongly believe in. I mean, this is just my opinion or subjective thing to say, but I always feel like, Frontier and countercultures are much more interesting and provide much more opportunities, especially for smaller players or users than what is already established or like here long enough. So a good example is Uniswap version 2 versus Uniswap version 3, where despite the fact that Uniswap version 3 is like much more efficient and, you know, all that stuff, clearly Uniswap version 2 was by far one of the biggest innovation in, mm. within DeFi or maybe crypto in general. Because it enabled like long tail of assets to like boost up liquidity very easily without any hassle. Anyone can jump in and become a liquidity provider. Uniswap V3 is already defeating this purpose somewhat with like all the complexities of MEV and like adversarial flow where you as passive liquidity provider in V3, in most cases you are losing money if the pool is not incentivized enough or if the assets are not correlated. But this is something that now like attracts most of the volume, is more efficient. Of course, like big players are happy. Maybe something like central order books on some more efficient layer like zero knowledge or I don't know, maybe Solana will be even more efficient. But that's already just, you know, it's already settlers coming in and settling what's what's being like uh, conquered by by conquistadors before. Mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in the quirky, weird, maybe smaller sort of frontier where all the magic happens and i kind of feel that like main meta purpose of like crypto in general is to enable as many new weird frontiers as possible and whenever the frontier moves away and the order is already established and big players come and start providing professional market making services of course it's like the total addressable market of this thing will be much bigger 
for like majority of big assets, it's uh, better to be listed on more efficient exchange. But it's not that interesting anymore. It's already something that right. we already somewhat know from the old world, and maybe it will be co-opted by big players. And the the frontier is always where the magic happens. I I always rather be on the frontier and make a bit less money, just having more fun, discovering new ways how to do things, than compete with bigger players right. in some already established meta and trying to figure out how to make trading for big institutions 20% more efficient. Right. Okay. This is really, really interesting. I absolutely love this. So the idea here is that like the frontier is like people are exploring the frontier. There's builders, innovators, people tinkering always on the frontier and they're discovering new things. And then they'll discover something that is like, cool. They'll find like, I don't know, a small gold rush, small pile of gold. And then the meta will change for all the individuals who are on the frontier to go to that gold rush and then extract all the gold. And that was like Uniswap V2, where it was a long tail of assets exploring like new possibilities. But then that gold rush was just proven to have a bunch of value. So the institutions came in, like the bigger people came in because it was a proven use case. And so they came and, you know, settled in on it and established they just boomered it. They like they took it in and they added like professionals and experts and well-capitalized, well-resourced players. And then that pushed away the speculators. It pushed away the frontier because people on the frontier, the individuals on the frontier don't want to compete with the professionals, right? They don't want to compete with the institutions. Plus it gets boring. And so they go and find like the new frontier, the new meta, and they try and explore the new thing. And it would make sense because like as crypto gets mainstream adopted, like first with Bitcoin, now later with Ethereum, and it becomes like institutionalized, it just pushes the explorers further out, right? Like we're always going more west because the frontier always benefits the individual, right? You don't have to compete with the large players if you're on the frontier. And so like as crypto becomes more mainstreamed, the frontier also expands because it's pushing people further and further out into like crazier and weirder and more niche like things to investigate. Yeah, I'm imagining it uh, as some sort of very uh, like, amorphous organism that mm. grows like slime mold um, like slime mold. Gets, yeah yeah yeah, yeah some, some mold that kind of spreads out and some branches of it maybe go in ways that don't make sense and they die out but some of them will like tap into some new resource and grow much bigger and yeah it's it's very it's very organic and like it's so organic just because it's programmable right like mm. you cannot really you can't really have this organism if you only have something like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a very simple thing that, uh, of course, it, it works and uh, it probably will keep working, but it will never be as as organic as like free-flowing and just tapping into new, weird, obscure frontiers as you have with something like Ethereum and smart contracts. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And this is, of course, where the power of pattern recognition, coming back to the poker metaphor, is really, really powerful. Where, like, you know, there's a leg, a, an appendage of this slime mold can grow off in a direction in an attempt to find some resource, to find some food so they can keep on growing. And, like, good slime molds will go and find the right food. They will route around the environment to discover the next resource, the next value. And then, if they do, that becomes like the new epicenter. And then, like, new things can spin off from there. And that, like, version of the slime mold can propagate. And then the bad slime mold will go off and find nothing. And then it will die. And this all, I think, depends on like pattern recognition, right? Because there is no way to fundamentally understand anything in the crypto world on the frontier like it's all got to be pattern recognition pattern recognition pattern recognition is that right yeah i mean yeah and like coming back to poker like there were well, there were basically many poker players many types of them but like two basic types of poker players were like one was 
more inquisitive was uh, someone like me was rather trying to play different types of games and kind of move and see what's out there and some poker players were just trying to figure out how to be best at one type of game mm. and these people usually even if they had some crypto because the first poker players didn't have crypto because they wanted to speculate they just wanted to play on illegal asian poker rooms for bitcoin because there were no other ways of payment and they had bitcoin quite early but they usually just didn't like it because it was volatile but some of them similar like maybe me started to figure out what this bitcoin thing is about and then we actually came from this small meta which was poker and actually like many things from poker are very similar to this crypto there are there is this like degen culture that is very similar to poker i have many stories that would be like hilarious even within a crypto context but some of these people actually brought this culture from maybe poker or some other areas and usually these people you know they were not very employable there are other types of people that would find the job easily because they spend all their youth just playing cards mm -hmm. and crypto for them when poker was kind of starting to fade away and die it was some sort of a salvation that they, they could utilize their skills and they found very similar culture where they could thrive so coming back to that it's like the mold when you imagine people as part of this mold some of them actually came from different types of area to discover crypto and push it forward maybe a bit more one line I like to say is one of crypto's best exports is its culture. Like, you know, the meme of working for a DAO where you don't have to work for your nine to five, it's very freeing, you get to do what you love, you get to work for your friends. I'm wondering if you have just an opinion on like a, a more like sociocultural opinion on the state of the world and also what it takes to be a part of that slime mold. Like the average person is not ready to be like an entrepreneur, right? An average person is not ready to explore the crypto frontier if they even were magically able to like understand everything about crypto to be able to do that. But I'm wondering like maybe is the last like 40 to 50 years of the world and of America just like baked into this whole like nine to five corporate like culture and like this is just what you do you go to work you don't explore you don't like innovate you just do your nine to five and in your eight hours a day you maybe get like 90 minutes of work done and now we have like something completely different where like eight hours of day in in the crypto if you're exploring the frontier is eight hours of progress for you the individual and i'm wondering if you just have any like grander like sociocultural thoughts about like is the zeitgeist of crypto like product market fit? Like are people of the normal world, pre-crypto world, looking for like this adventure? Or do you think this is just only for like a select few niche parts of the population? No, I definitely believe, I strongly believe that this new paradigm of work enabled by maybe not just crypto, but like online coordination tools in general, such as Discord, it will like bring a big shift to how we like work. And it's not just because like this is obviously, let's say, more enjoyable for, I would say, most fairly intelligent people than just go to work and, you know, beep your card and, you know, then just spend like a couple of hours there just pretending you do something and then going home and thinking about your life. It's not just like, I would say, more fulfilling, especially as hopefully we will see more automation in like physical space. So we won't need as many like workers in the world of atoms. But I also feel that it's somewhat more natural to human beings uh, similar to i don't know i don't want to spread too much into it but like some sort of hunter gatherer mm. modus operandi right when when you were hunter or gatherer you weren't just you weren't just bashing into something for for six hours at home you went out and then you were looking for opportunities sometimes you saw a mammoth sometimes you just saw a rabbit sometimes you had to pick some roots and berries and you had to be very flexible but you <laughs> 
on average, hunters gatherers worked much less, and they had more time to socialize, to like be within their tribe and just I don't know, sing around the fire or something like that. And this, okay, this is not like a one-to-one analogy, but it feels very similar in crypto, where you can like one part of your day spend like looking for new investments or speculations to make. The other is chatting with your friends in some Discord community group. Mm-hmm. The other is maybe you part-time you are doing some design work or some coding for some DAO or a crypto project and you can like very fluidly switch between these things during the day and it works out well. Of course it requires much more ownership on your part but I would say like people in the past had this ownership they were like wired this way and only with more like industrial age we were kind of forced into cubicles so to speak. So I kind of feel we are kind of Okay, the digital thing is definitely new, staring into our computers is not, you know, something that our ancestors would do, but like on some level, it's very similar with more like fluidity, with more independent discovery of new opportunities more often than just finding a job once in five years. Right. Yeah, we are the hunter-gatherers of the metaverse, right? We're still sitting in front of our computers for like 12 hours a day. So we're definitely not doing it in real life. But of the metaverse, like we are exploring a lot. And it's also in tandem with socialization because everyone's in like the shared discords and there's like Twitter. I actually want to pick your brain on that because Fisky, you're of course an Anon. Fiscantes, I'm imagining is not your actual name (laughs) and you're of course camera off. And so I'm wondering like, do you do real life crypto socialization or do you scratch your crypto socialization itch through just like online memes like Discord or Twitter? I was very conflicted about it. And for a long time, I was very adamant about my real life privacy, Mm -hmm. but it kind of changed uh, last year in Lisbon where after two years of COVID situation, I was able to meet many people that I interacted with for a couple of years in crypto. And of course, at that time, I already had a a larger following. So many people, I kind of knew who I am from online world. And I could have basically two options, either pretend I'm not me and just have this uh, bland debates where I just kind of avoid anything specific about what I'm doing or figure out some like fake story about me, which would probably you know, be much less interesting for me to kind of engage in or just say that, you know, okay, it's me, this is my fate, all right, and just let's talk. And after some time, I actually gave in and chose the second route. So now many people actually know how I look, so I'm not definitely a complete anon, but it gave a very new dimension to all my, like, crypto city life and experience because I met many people in person and this is something for us who still have like hunter-gatherer brains. It's very different when you meet someone in person and you can like share ideas and, you know, body language is an important part of communication. So suddenly people you spoke with online are very different in real life and you kind of get very different sort of information out of them when you speak like freely in real life. So I'm definitely not an I gave in and I don't regret it. But I remember at the beginning, like I met Stefan from Flashbots and we spent a lot of time talking online. And for like the first evening I met him, I pretended I'm just some random guy. <laughs> he doesn't know. And I was just asking him about flashbots. And, and, you know, it was like, it was okay conversation, but it was obviously like, you know, we are both introverts. So it was like more like forced conversation, you mm. know, like, okay, so what are flashbots, blah, blah. And then the next day I met him and I actually like uh, told him I am Fisky. And he was like, oh my God. And we had very different conversation, much more human, more like personal. Yeah. So it makes a difference. And I... 
I rather give up a part of my privacy mm-hmm. for this than like be very anal about like not showing my face. Right. Do you find that you have a different persona when you are Fisky the Anon versus I'm assuming you call yourself I'm Fiskantes in real life rather than using your name, but like when in real life, do you have like a different persona? Oh, like either on purpose or on accident? Definitely not even on purpose, on accident. Um, yeah. like one thing is that everyone is free to like craft their online persona more easily. You can use profile picture. You can, when you write something, you can think twice about what you write. It's kind of different, especially for uh, like more introverted people who need to spend more time thinking about what they're gonna say. Mm. When you write, you have much more time, so it's like it's more comfortable to craft your persona. I'm I picked this like Hisoka Joker character, which is very like chaotic, evil sort of thing on purpose. I want it to be more like edgy, chaotic. I want it to be online, someone who is very like cynical sometimes and like have all these like sharp jokes. Which kind of I mean sometimes it. Uh, it falls. This mask isn't always on, even when I'm tweeting online. But I usually kind of come back to it. But in person, I'm very different, I would say. And I feel kind of weird when people are like, "Oh my God, you, you look so different." You know, we imagined you being this like Joker, very like uh, uh, skinny sort of guy or something. And then uh, yeah, I'm yeah, I, I think I'm very different person. And it's not by design. It's like just how we form our identities online and. Uh, I find it very interesting, this world that you can have multiple identities disconnected from your real persona mm-hmm. online. And some people, I know some people have multiple outer egos or out accounts on Twitter. I can't imagine that. I don't have time for that, but some people can pull it off. So yeah, that's definitely crazy. And also another paradigm shift, which maybe in a way connects to the future of work online, that you can actually have multiple identities for multiple work purposes. And it has a like huge uh, like downsides as well of course you know you can have uh, all kinds of people masking themselves behind uh, some new online identity but i think it's a very interesting sort of vector of human evolution which we will see in next decades proliferate more yeah i actually want to dive into the online version of socialization is there like a discord that you live in or a telegram that you live in or is there like some sort of online room that you consider yourself like a part of where you get your online socialization itch scratched uh I'm actually much less active in like these uh, popular online groups than uh, some other people. Okay. I'm online very often, but I usually spend most of my time with my team mm-hmm. uh, because we have like mm-hmm. not only one, we actually have a couple of teams that are all branching out to different directions. One team is more focused on games and GameFi. One is more into like DeFi or general like crypto infrastructure things. So I spend a lot of time with my own team within like our entities such as Prime. But I have a couple of like private chats with like, let's say, maybe up to 100 people from like DeFi or like NFT. And there are like two or three that I'm more active in. But over time, I kind of figured out that if you kind of scale the group above Dunbar number, it, it starts to get noisy. And then all, I mean, I mean, like I'm being added to all the Telegram groups and some discords and okay. Over time, I kind of feel that they all converge to the same topics, like to everybody is talking about Elon Musk buying Twitter, or everybody is talking about Dokwon or LFG buying another uh, half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. So it kind of it converges to be more uniform, and only the small groups that are focused in some specific direction, either groups of teams of people or DAOs that are building something specific, are still kind of differentiated enough for me. To care, so I'm less active in the private groups. I'm very active on Twitter, though. On Twitter itself, it feels it's 
it's very interesting space. It will change a lot, I would say. I think crypto Twitter will be much less influential over crypto landscape in general in a couple of years, but it's one of the weirdest spaces I operated in. The homogenization of like the big groups fits into the whole idea of just like as something becomes more mainstream, it just becomes more professionalized or like there's no alpha in like groups that are larger than Dunbar's number, right? Because like you said, everyone starts talking about the same thing. It's no longer the frontier. The frontier has got to be when you're down to like a group of people that's like that, you know, everyone in that group, right? It's just like five, 10, maybe 15 people. And like, as soon as a group gets to like 150 plus, it starts to, like you said, sound like every other group that, and so like there is no alpha there because the alpha doesn't get shared in the meta groups. And I think Reddit also has the same structure. Like there's many, many critiques of like Reddit old timers where like the massive subreddits like our picks or like our news are just like homogenous, right? There is no like unique thing about those homogenous groups anymore. Like, and so it's always like the frontier subreddits, the smaller subreddits where there are there more niche experts is where like the quality Reddit content is. But then as people discover that's where the quality content is, they start to float into those subreddits and start to homogenize them and, and scale them out. And so I'm seeing similar yeah. patterns here as to what we were talking about with like the frontier and where the alpha is. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there are a couple of smaller groups that still like keep being interesting enough, but they need to be kind of consciously adamant about not letting the group become too big or not divert the discussion. Like people, especially in crypto, people find it very hard to resist to post charts or like intraday trades or like stuff like that, even in groups that are specifically set to like discuss, let's say, long-term fundamentals or mm -hmm. something different. Like there are a couple of topics that are just irresistible to people. And if you don't have enough contrarians that just don't care about these things, just keep talking about bullshit of the day or uptick of the day or like daily candle or whatever, then it just deteriorates really quickly. So it's a process that uh, either you are very hands-on with moderation or you just keep jumping between small groups or, mm -hmm. yeah, just, just have your tight-knit group of people or tribe that you are very intimate with and you work very closely with. And then one other thing is within these groups, I think it's hard to measure, but if there was a way to measure it, I would like to see some dashboard for it would be the level of trust between crypto people. And I actually remember one old, very old Skype group between online poker players from all over the world. The only way how you could get into this Skype group was to be invited by some already established poker player who was there. And each poker player that was there, I mean, the, it was OTC group for crypto, actually, like 2015 or something. Mm. Poker players were trading Bitcoin for cash. And how would they do it? They would basically either like use some PayPal or uh, some like uh, Skrill or some other payment system for smaller amounts, but for big amounts, they would actually do cash transactions. So for example, I got into that group and I had some euros. I wanted to buy Bitcoin. I had them in cash. At the time, it was fairly large amount for me. And I guess for like almost anyone who is not like a millionaire. And I got connected to this poker player who was actually playing in the same city that I was taking. There was some tournament in local casino. I came there. You know, this was this guy, he was already asleep because he fell from the tournament. And then he went down to the casino lobby only in his pink pajamas. And it was like 20 year old German guy. He was like sleepy and he came with his laptop. He opened up Kraken. It was, I think it was 2018. He opened Kraken account and he basically transferred Bitcoin to my address. Then I gave him money in like an envelope. 
and he started to count it, the money just dropped on the floor. So he just picked them up in front of a lot of people. He didn't even count it. He was like, okay, bye. And he, he walked away. And this was the level of trust that was among these poker players. Whenever someone new was invited, the guy who invited him had to put some sort of collateral for the new guy that was there until the guy proven himself as like reliable. And there was a huge spreadsheet with all the poker players there and how much they successfully traded with other poker people. So there were a couple of guys that had like millions of dollars of turnover over their lifetime. And this was some sort of a trust score that you could ascribe to these people. I would like to see something similar within crypto because with the level of trust growing within some sort of tribe or, or like digital group or DAO or crypto group, you know, things get so much easier. When you have like five people that you can trust right. uh, that they will hold $1 million for you and you don't have to sign any contracts or whatever bullshit, it's very different than when you have 100 people that just share some alpha, meaning they will ship you their NFTs they already bought and then they will dump on you or something. It's, it's very different level of, of coordination. So I'm bullish on these types of groups, but there is obviously not too many of them and there is no... I haven't seen a tool that would track this as well as these poker players did is on Skype with the spreadsheet. Right. Well, I mean, if a tool was developed, it probably would mean that we're no longer on the frontier, right? Exactly. So if people are doing uh, Skype on the Excel sheet. That is some frontier level shenanigans going on. Have you read the article called um, Squad Wealth by the other internet group? No, I haven't. I know about squads, uh, which is like this tribes of online people who work together somehow or yeah is this different thing? no yeah. that's, it's about the right vibe I, I know about this concept yeah yeah it goes back into the whole like future of work thing where like the new paradigm is just making money online with your friends and so like this squad it has to be a small group of people like not even close to 50 like we're talking like five to ten people where like no it's your actual squad like if you were in the real life not in the metaverse y'all would be going out to like the bar together on a friday night but instead you have like the online squad and you know maybe you can scale that up but the point is like there's not a single person in the group that you aren't familiar with and so like everything in this chat is highly curated is highly intentional you know the personalities of everyone and it leads to a lot of trust even though like you know we've never shook hands we just exist in the metaverse and we just work together to make money it's like the new paradigm is making money online with your friends and it sounds like this poker room was like an early primitive of this whole entire like squad wealth movement yeah i mean yeah that's a very good way to frame it i would say that we have something similar with z prime i mean it's still an entity that has legal, you know, like set up somewhere in Gibraltar yeah, and sure. like, you know, it has all the formalities, but I really feel like it's more about this sort of digital making money together and doing cool stuff together than it is about, oh, having LPs and having an entity somewhere and mm -hmm. making P&L. So I kind of feel that we will have many of these movements kind of being maybe formalized at the start, but then branching out maybe more to digital space. And of course, we know each other personally. We meet quite often, you know, in some retreat somewhere and like work together face to face. But I, I mean, it's important, but I feel that in maybe for next generation, it will be much less obvious to just meet in the meet space. Is the Z Prime Discord, is that like, do people socialize in there or is that strictly for getting work done? No, no, we don't have Discord. We have or a couple Telegram. of Telegram groups, okay. Okay. but it works very similar. Yeah. We socialize, we post memes, yeah. we have fun. We do all kinds of stuff, but yeah, we also do work. Right. So yeah, it's very tribal. We, we, we make a lot of lot of cool interactions even outside of our context. Right, yeah. It's the Bankless LLC Discord is kind of the same way. There's about like, 15 people in there that are in there like every single day like engaging and then there's some other people too 
But like we've started to generate like our own language, our own like particular memes that we enjoy, our particular reaction emojis that we use the most. And I don't know, it's just a fun place to be. And like there's the way there as time progresses throughout the day, like the mornings are for work and then the evenings are for shit posting. And so like people start to like transition as the day goes on. People start to like we get to tie up our daily duties. And then in the second half of the day, we all go into what we call our hood rat shit channel where we just post hood rat shit. Like this is the NFT I'm minting or so like people are out in like the podcast telegram or the discord or the, the newsletter discord. But then everyone ends up in like the alpha channel or the hood rat shit channel. It's like they're watching this like social dynamic, like for this social pack of animals, like migrate around the discord as the day progresses. And it's like this, it's got like a ritual. It's got like time of the day. It's just an interesting dynamic. Is there anything like that that you see at the Z prime capital? Um, more or less, um, we have like a structure in a way that we have some weekly calls and we have a lot of calls with founders. And then we talk about it within our groups. We don't have like this GM sort of rituals right. where every morning, every month post GM. We don't have that, but we have all kinds of like internal jokes and memes and some of them you actually see spilling over to twitter if you check uh, like my or uh, matigax uh, account uh, specifically between two of us there's like a lot of banter that uh, like internally you know makes a lot of sense and then we also argue a lot on twitter uh-huh. which sometimes is funny sometimes it's internal humor but we have this kind of dynamic setup which is very similar and yeah as you said it's a ritual it's something that you know like tribal societies gathered around fire every evening, right? So this is something similar. Yeah, certainly. Fisky, if there's one piece of advice or one like rule of thumb that you follow that has served you well throughout your life that I could ask you about, what would that be? Um, okay, so like one thing that I kind of feel that served me very well, I'm not sure if it's very easily transferable, but it's just, I just got so comfortable with volatility with the way how I don't care about plus minus a number up number down for me it just it's just non-event it makes me so much more calm focused and happier and then I'm also having a lot of fun seeing all the Twitter guys just flipping out about prices when especially now when the markets are down so if someone can get to the state of like not caring that much of course you also need some sort of a sensible, bankroll management which is probably another advice i would give like always have sensible bankroll management meaning you know like divide your portfolio into multiple parts and just have some sort of a backup if things go down always have some cash etc never go all in you know risk only x percent on every farm or whatever but with this like comes so much more fun like i just have so much more fun when i don't have to stress about you know now daily bitcoin candle going minus 10 percent or something it's just just amazing so this is probably yeah so this is one thing and the other thing is this is what i struggled with i was more like a individualistic sort of a person during my poker playing career i was just doing everything myself i mean i had some poker playing friends but i was playing on my own and only when i kind of ganged together with my tribe with different people who are good at different things and we kind of made it work together and increased the level of trust between us into unparalleled levels like my quality of life when it comes to like business or career, like 10 X instantly. So probably these two things, like if you can, like, I don't know, meditate, read stoicism or books uh, from stoics and then uh, find your tribe of people you can really trust and work with and scale your effort and focus. 
and everything you do within crypto will be so much more easier and enjoyable. Timeless wisdom, of course. Thank you, Fisky, for coming on Layer Zero and chatting with me. It was amazing to be on this podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Cheers. Cheers.